daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to announce a verdict of not guilty. What verdict of not guilty? Uh, the verdict of charges against Israel and against the United States of America that we had something to do with the bombing in Iran that claimed at least 103 lives and 140 people uh, injured, and, and most of them not military people. This was at a uh, memorial service for Qasem Soleimani, the uh, leader of the Iranian Al-Quds force, the Iranian forces who was killed by the United States, and the United States claimed credit for that. In fact, President Trump was fairly proud of it. In any event, the uh, the the revenge attack or the nature of the terrorist attack, it turns out that it was committed by somebody we had almost forgotten about or a force that we had almost forgotten about, the Islamic State. How do we know we're telling there that they're telling the truth? We will get into that because this is very important for the future of the uh, boiling that is going on in the Middle East. Speaking of going on in the Middle East, there was a school shooting this morning. Uh, it is unclear um, how many people have been seriously injured uh, and whether or not anyone has died. The school principal in Perry, Iowa, now, this is so bizarre because, of course, it is just days from the Iowa primary, the Iowa caucuses. The caucuses, the first in the country, which are very important uh, on the Republican side of things. President Trump is very widely expected to win Iowa with a commanding margin. But uh, the Iowa caucuses are coming up in 11 days from now. Is this school shooting going to have any impact at all in Perry, Iowa? I've been to Perry, Iowa. And I've been to Perry, Iowa because it's almost a model of what's beautiful and admirable and wonderful about American small towns. Uh, there's a philanthropist that, that I know who actually uh, brought me out to Perry, Iowa a family named Amundsen, who are wonderful, wonderful people, support conservative causes. And uh, Roberta Green Amundsen is a native of this town. It's an 8,000 population town of Perry. It's about 40 miles away from Des Moines. But uh, what a terrible thing. The uh, uh, shooter at Perry High School died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, multiple law enforcement officials have already declared three others, including two students and an administrator, were injured in today's shooting. Uh, today is the beginning of the second semester for the Perry Community School District following the winter break. And the shooting comes just days before the Iowa caucuses, which will kick off the 2024 Republican presidential primary process on January 15th. Uh, everybody, the governor, Governor Reynolds of Iowa, has commented on the uh, school shooting. Uh, it's a terrible thing in a very unlikely occasion. The suspect in the shooting, as mentioned, has died of what investigators believe is a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and two gunshot victims were taken by ambulance to Iowa Methodist Medical Center 
in the state capital of Des Moines. Uh, four hours ago, this is the statement by Dallas County, Iowa Sheriff uh, Adam Infante. Uh, this is clip five. Uh, this morning at approximately 7.37 a.m., we had a Sears radio activation at the high school, which indicated an active shooter situation. Uh, an officer first arrived within seven minutes of that activation uh, and located multiple gunshot victims. Uh, we're still unclear exactly how many are injured uh, or what the extent of those are, but we're working on that right now. There is no further danger to the public. The community is safe. Uh, we're just now working backwards, trying to figure out everything that happened and make notifications. There'll be another update later on today. Uh, we're, it's still very early. This happened at approximately 7.37 this morning. School didn't start yet. Luckily, uh, so there was very few students and faculty in the building, uh, which I think contributed to uh, a good outcome in that sense. But we'll have more information later on this afternoon. We will not be releasing any more information in the meantime. Uh, so please be patient with us so that we can talk with these victims and their families and try and figure out what happened. Okay, we will give you the latest on that information. We also are going to be joined by Michael Rubin, senior fellow at AEI, an expert on Iran. What are the chances of Iran getting directly involved, especially after it turns out that uh, ISIS uh, and the Sunni terrorists of ISIS uh, were responsible for killing the Shiite supporters of terrorism in Iran by the hundreds, and they've done this before. And why should we believe uh, ISIS claiming credit, such as it is, for this terrorist attack? We'll be speaking to Michael Rubin about that. We'll also be speaking to Heather McDonald about the conflict between Harvard and uh, its critics uh, leading to a major conservative victory, a major victory, it seems to me, for fairness and sanity with the resignation of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. We'll talk about that with Heather McDonald and Henry Olson of the Ethics and Public Policy Center has a piece taking a look at some of the statistics that uh, we've talked about before which is about the growth in states that are more conservative uh, and uh, the movement of uh, all kinds of uh, people to states that are offering a uh, more conservative state governance. And that, he says, uh, could change uh, uh, permanently the balance of power in uh, the Electoral College, giving something like a permanent advantage to Republicans. How does uh, this work, and uh, what happens to the blue states? In other words, what he's talking about is the uh, red states will stay red, blue states will get even bluer, but the swing states, which decide every election, uh, seem to be moving in terms of population and apportionment in a Republican direction. We'll speak about that with Henry Olson coming up on the Michael Medved Show. We will also complete our best of the year movie list. I've also seen a new film, which is rather remarkable and very controversial, 
because it deals with the Holocaust uh, and Auschwitz in a very different way than it's ever been dealt with in mass media before. Uh, that and uh, a brand new poll, and it's a, a shocking poll from New Hampshire. Why is it shocking? Because it does not show a commanding lead for Donald Trump. Now, most other polls do, but this is the most recent poll. It was actually uh, conducted on, uh, completed on yesterday. So it's a brand new poll showing uh, Trump at 37% and Haley at 33%. Uh, everybody else running a little bit behind. Uh, the suspected Iowa school shooter, uh, they now have given his name, just provided it. His name is Dylan Butler, who injured three people, including the principal, before turning the gun on himself. Uh, he uh, himself, he was a senior at Perry High School. He was named as a suspected gunman. And the Dan Marburger, who is the principal, uh, one of the three people injured and rushed to the hospital, currently in surgery for his gunshot wounds. Uh, Dylan Butler uh, named as a suspect. What more do we know about it? Motivations, where he would have gotten the gun, what was used. We'll give you the rest of the details as they unfold. All coming up on The Medved Show. The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. MichaelMedved.com. On The Michael Medved Show, uh, just a few more details now available on the shooter in uh, the beautiful town of Perry, Iowa. And by the way, the reason I say it's a beautiful town, it's a town of 8,000. And it's where Roberta Green Amundsen grew up, as I mentioned. And uh, the, the, when you're there, she has given a great deal of money to restore historic buildings and to make the town vital and vibrant again. Uh, there was an old closed hotel called the Hotel Patty, and just gorgeously restored and uh, basically because of somebody who had grown up there in a very religious Baptist home and uh, it, again terribly sad to see this the killer uh, I mean he was a killer of himself he uh, had uh, they, they had uh, taken down the TikTok account which had been in his name and he has pictures on the TikTok account which they have uh, actually gathered before TikTok removed it but uh, showing him uh, in, in a kind of expression and kind of presentation that seems like the typical high school shooter that you find out about after the fact may he rest in peace or he's a senior and uh, apparently one of the things that he had on his TikTok account was a rainbow flag who knows what that means and he also had posted uh, some videos of him having a pretend uh, gunfight with uh, uh, presumably some of his friends uh, but he has now killed himself and again given the fact that the uh, 
individual most seriously wounded appears to be the principal. Uh, this sounds at least uh, superficially as if there may have been some kind of grudge against the school administration. Uh, the principal, Dan Marburger, uh, everyone in that town is um, praying for his speedy recovery and he's in surgery now apparently or was in surgery until very recently uh, he he may indeed with God's help recover and have a, a perfect healing um, meanwhile speaking about healing uh, there's a new American research group poll of 600 likely voters now, those are people who are likely to vote in the Republican primary that's taking place in New Hampshire. Uh, Donald Trump is leading, but it's within the margin of error. Uh, Trump with 37%, Nikki Haley 33%, Chris Christie third 10%, Ron DeSantis way down at 5%, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy at 4%. Uh, if Ramaswamy... Uh, beats DeSantis in New Hampshire, will he be encouraged to continue with his campaign? Uh, is it, What is his campaign about right now? Well, Nikki Haley's campaign looks more and more like she, first of all, what this uh, strong showing in New Hampshire shows is that there doesn't appear to have been any kind of fatal or near-fatal damage from her foolish stumbling remarks about the causes of the Civil War. Uh, there are lots and lots of issues that Americans are concerned about. I, I don't think uh, an ongoing debate about the causes of the Civil War will be top among them. It's interesting. Uh, it's worth talking about because people need to understand what the cause of the Civil War and the cause of the Civil War was there were a lot of Americans concentrated in the southern states who valued uh, the protection of slavery more than they valued the protection of the union of the states. And yes, it was a war for the union, but what the war for the union meant was that you would limit the extension of slavery. That's the platform that Lincoln ran on. And you would limit the extension of slavery with the hope that it would ultimately be extinguished, which, of course, it was by the war itself. In any event, uh, the, um, they're reporting at Hotline, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley publicly panned former President Trump on her latest swing through New Hampshire during the pivotal weeks before the January 23rd primary. This is a departure from the more reserved approach to attacking the former president she has typically exhibited. Uh, she rebuked the ads that MAGA Inc., a pro-Trump super PAC, aired against her. Haley said, in his commercials and in his temper tantrums, every single thing that he has said about me has been a lie. Um, voters on the campaign trail are repeatedly asking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis why he won't directly criticize Donald Trump. DeSantis said that he does denounce the former president, but that he won't smear him. Uh-huh. Difference between denouncing and smearing, I guess. Uh, the Florida governor often denigrates Trump for failing to follow through with some of his 2016 campaign promises, but he largely refuses to criticize the rhetoric that 
President Trump uses. Uh, Nikki Haley, uh, looking at, uh, and obviously she has her own campaign polling. She understands that New Hampshire is close in a way that Iowa is not. She made this uh, joke, uh, if supposed to be a joke, uh, about the Iowa caucuses. And uh, this is with her campaigning campaigning in New Hampshire. This is clip 14.5. We have an opportunity to get this right. And I know we'll get it right. And I trust you. I trust every single one of you. You know how to do this. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go... And then my sweet state of South Carolina brings it home. That's what we do. That's what we do. Okay, uh, again, uh, it sounds like, uh, according to the most recent polling, a little bit of energy and momentum for Nikki Haley. Uh, there's also a viral video uh, about a Republican voter speaking with a reporter from uh, New Hampshire. We will get to that and to more on the campaign. But first, the the ongoing battle of Shiites and Sunnis of terrorists like the Houthi uh, rebels in, in Yemen who are uh, Sunni uh, terrorists and basically trying to attack and ruin world shipping. What does it all mean? Where do we go from that? We will be talking about that with Michael Rubin, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and director of uh, policy and analysis at the Middle East Forum. Uh, what does it mean that ISIS took credit for the bombing in Iran? And how does that advance any of what uh, ISIS cares about? Show, uh, for people who doubt that there is a nightmarish aspect to the terrorist world in the Middle East, the, the current story about the twin suicide bombers, uh, both of whom obviously succeeded in their suicide missions and killing themselves and 103 other people in Iran, that these are Muslims killing fellow Muslims. But it is a case of uh, Sunni Muslims killing Shiite Muslims. And why should, what is it, after 1,500 years of conflict, why should that conflict still take precedence over the United States' involvement with Iran and Iran's clients, the Houthis and Hezbollah, and to some extent Hamas? To put all of this in some kind of uh, uh, perspective, uh, nobody better than Michael Rubin, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also director of policy analysis at the Middle East Forum. Uh, so uh, ISIS has claimed credit. They posted this on the Internet, apparently. Why do we believe that ISIS is actually the force behind this bombing in Iran, Michael? Well, it's completely plausible that the Islamic State would be behind the bombing here. Remember, most of Iran might be Shiite, but about 10% of the population is Sunni. And they live along the periphery, including in Kerman, 
a city which I know well, I, I, I had visited before, um, which is down in the southeast of Iran. Now, the thing with the Sunnis in Iran is this. Usually they're ethnic minorities, so that's strike number one. And then they're sectarian minorities, so they are often feel dispossessed, and that gives an opening for groups like the Islamic State to come in. We've seen previous Islamic State attacks among the Arabs in Iran in the oil-producing region in the southwest, and we've seen lots of violence in the past, kidnappings of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps um, officers, their beheading, and so forth in this part of Iran. The key here, Michael, is to understand that while we often focus on the center in Iran, on Tehran, on the Ayatollahs, the periphery of Iran is a mess. It always has been, and it's only getting worse. Okay, first of all, it, it, it seems to me that uh, I don't uh, obviously speak the language, but I know that they posted material on the Internet that described in great detail the nature of this operation, uh, carrying two suitcases. Uh, they gave the names of the two suicide killers, the two, quote, martyrs who were... Uh, degrading a, a, a memorial celebration for somebody that the Shiites consider a martyr, uh, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, isn't the the detail that ISIS provided, isn't that a pretty clear indication that they knew what was going on with this bombing and were behind it? Absolutely. And the fact of the matter is Qasem Soleimani had a lot of enemies especially among groups like the Islamic State, which he helped fight in Iraq and in Syria. At the same time, Qasem Soleimani based his legitimacy as head of the Quds Force on Shiism, and he had a, uh, a real role in suppressing and assassinating Sunni leaders inside Iran itself. Remember, with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the difference between them and the Iranian army is while the Iranian army is charged with territorial defense, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is charged with defense of the revolution, which means enemies can be either external or internal. But there's, again, absolutely every reason to believe the Islamic State in this case. Uh, clearly, this was a coordinated attack. It was a well-planned attack. Uh, what They used the same tactics in Kerman that the Iranians and Iranian-backed groups often use in Israel with two suicide attacks times so that while well, the first attack creates mass casualty, the second attack, which comes perhaps 10 minutes later, is designed to um, catch the rescue workers who by then have started the triage. Wow. Uh, okay, uh, there's uh, CNN is reporting that the Houthis, uh, again, the clients of Iran, people supported by Iran, have launched an unmanned surface drone against the commercial shipping lanes in the Red Sea uh, today, this morning, as the U.S. Navy commander in the region said he sees no signs of the attacks abating. Uh, can't we, we do something to get uh, the Iranians back <laughs> to fighting their their fellow, though doctrinally and uh, ethnically different uh, than than them, but go back to this uh, conflict between Sunni and Shiite Muslims in Iran 
and uh, and pull back a little bit on their apparent intent to expand the war? Well, you're absolutely right, Michael. First of all, weakness is contagious. And the United States for decades now has shown weakness. The error that um, the era of our deterrence is over needs to be reestablished. Um, the best analogy to what the Houthis are doing now uh, and what the United States is trying to do in response isn't the Somalia anti-piracy mission of a decade or two ago, but rather it's what happened under Ronald Reagan when we reflagged the Kuwaiti tankers that were going through the Strait of Hormuz, another strategic choke point, and the Persian Gulf. In that episode, which again was meant to preserve freedom of shipping, that ultimately ended in a military engagement after Iranian ships laid mines, which um, damaged a U.S. ship, the USS Samuel Johnson, I think it was, uh, or Samuel Roberts, I'm sorry. Um, the only question I have now with regard to the Houthis is when are they going to start laying mines? I suspect that will be next. Um, but ultimately, look, the Iranians have never hesitated to fight the West to the last Arab or the last Afghan. They just don't want to do it to the last Iranian. Uh, you can picture Iran sort of as an octopus. The Ayatollah, the supreme leader of Khamenei, is the head of the octopus, but the tentacles are Hamas, the Houthis, Hezbollah, and other proxy groups like that. We've got to start recognizing that the problem lies in the head instead of playing whack a tentacle uh, when it comes to Hamas, the Houthis, and Hezbollah. Okay, and what does that, does that mean exactly? I mean, I know that there has been such a high level of conflict in the streets and protests in Iran, and now there is this extremely serious, I mean, 103 people dead. Uh, the New York Times is saying, well, it actually was only 84 people killed in Kerman. But with all of this going on, uh, is there any chance that this might make a wider war less likely? Well, there's two things going on. First of all, again, violence inside Iran, terrorist attacks inside Iran aren't new. Uh, the Iranians will try to twist this. They'll try to blame the United States, blame Israel, to give an excuse to continue their attacks. But they do have uh, a weak underbelly. That said, the way to win the hearts and minds of the Iranians isn't through terrorism. This just, however, shows that in the periphery of Iran, uh, the regime has for decades been illegitimate. The only thing that's changed in recent years is the woman life freedom movement has completely de delegitimized the movement, um, the, the regime at home. Ultimately, when Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei dies, we're going to see a vacuum, and then all bets are off. Uh, Michael, I believe you can stay with us for a little bit longer. Absolutely. He is, he is the Director of Policy Analysis at the Middle East Forum. What is happening uh, with the long-term prospects for uh, the, the results of the Hamas versus Israel war? That and more coming up with the Michael Rubin of American Enterprise Institute. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's, it's dangerous for America. It's dangerous for the world. This is the Michael Medved Show.
Inside Show, just a breaking story from the Jerusalem Post. The Defense Minister of the State of Israel, Yoav Gallant, said today uh, that he was presenting a plan to the War Cabinet. War Cabinet is basically just three people. It's uh, the Defense Minister Gallant and Minister Without Portfolio, Benny Gantz, who is the chief alternative to Benjamin Netanyahu, who is Prime Minister, who is the third member. In any event, the War Cabinet and the State Security Council and Cabinet for Israel's security status, uh, once the war is over, they just got a new plan. And the plan includes the integration of existing Palestinian civilian leadership in Gaza into a more substantial local government. Hamas will not rule Gaza, said Gallant in a press briefing before the meeting and Israel will not hold a civilian governorship over Gaza. Um, so what do you, I'm speaking with Michael Rubin, who is a senior fellow at AEI, American Enterprise Institute. He is someone who has spent a lot of his life living and writing about the Middle East and all of the various participants and conflicts. Uh, do you think that goal of setting up a new civilian Palestinian government in Gaza is something that is attainable? Um, absolutely. I mean, look, this is what has been assumed all along would be the plan. Uh, it's just perhaps different window dressing. It's an argument that Hamas needs to be excised, but that was um, Israel's position from the get-go and that the Palestinian Authority in some shape or form would take over uh, inside Gaza. Remember, the Palestinian Authority was a partner uh, after the elections of the leadership in Gaza, sharing it with Hamas. And then in 2007, Hamas turned its guns on their Palestinian partners and took autocratic control. So this is simply going back to the status quo ante. The problem with the Palestinian Authority, however, is that its leader, Mahmoud Abbas, is 88 years old. He's in the 18th year of his four-year presidential term, and he has appointed no successor. So while it should normally be easy to say, we've got to put the Palestinian Authority back, you can't base long-term security on the longevity of an 88-year-old. And so this shows that the Israelis, perhaps in conjunction with other Palestinians, are thinking about what comes next, not only in Gaza, but the implication also is in the West Bank as well. Yeah, I mean, again, when you think about uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the length of his service, he's uh, at almost two full presidential terms older than Biden. And, oh. <laughs> I mean, and Americans look at that and you really do wonder what the future is. I, I know that there has been a great deal of focus on, I believe the name is Marwan Barghouti, who I have read a great deal about. The people are suggesting that he is a possible uh, Palestinian uh, 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 who, because he is imprisoned right now, but he has uh, talked about more possible coordination between Palestinians and, and Israel. Somebody who could be a transitional figure like Nelson Mandela coming out of prison and then leading people to reconciliation. Do you, 
Um, I'm sure you, you know about Barghouti. Is he someone of substance? Well, certainly he's someone of substance, but I don't think he's any Mandela. He's in prison for murder, and he's unapologetic about that murder. So the biggest difference between him and Mandela is one can argue that either Mandela was in prison unjustly or had an epiphany away from violence while he was in prison. That certainly isn't the case with Marwan Barghouti. If you have Marwan Barghouti in control, he might have legitimacy among those who want to uh, apologize for terror, but he's not going to have legitimacy or the wherewithal to be a peacemaker. You have other Palestinians out there, however, whom people talk about. One is Mohammed Dahlan, who is the former security chief that had a long partnership with the Central Intelligence Agency, as in the wake of the Oslo Accords, helped build up the Palestinian security forces. Right and now, he, he's from Gaza, isn't he? He's a Gazan. I believe he's from Gaza. Uh, he's been exiled to the United Arab Emirates by Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian chairman, because Mahmoud Abbas was afraid that um, even though he's 88 years old, Mahmoud Salam wasn't going to wait till he died a natural death. There's also Salam Fayyad, who's the former prime minister. He's a finance expert. It's, I mean, in an ideal world, he's someone who could build up business. He's not a terrorist. He doesn't have violence. Uh, to his name, but it's not clear that the Palestinians would ever accept someone like that. So then the question comes, can you have some sort of transitional council, perhaps including uh, two of these three, probably not Barghouti, and that's, I suspect, what we're going to see. Uh, and uh, do you think that's something we're going to see <laughs> I mean, in the next uh, months or years or decades? Well, certainly we're going to see it in the next months. Israel doesn't want to permanently occupy the Gaza Strip, although it needs to be said that more Israelis died on October 7th than were killed in the entire occupation of the Gaza Strip from 1967 to 1995. Um, that said, we're going to see some sort of transition there because the Israelis, again, don't want to restore, resume the occupation. That's a mission without an end, and they don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I think many Israelis quite privately wish that in 1967 they had withdrawn right away from the West Bank and Gaza and saved themselves the headache over the subsequent decades. And uh, what about the idea, I mean, when people look ahead, one of the things that seems to be insoluble is the presence of... <clears throat> No one's sure exactly how many, but some estimated 600,000 Israeli, in quotes, settlers who have uh, built communities in what is today the West Bank. Is it unthinkable that some kind of future arrangement uh, could allow uh, Jews to live in a future Palestine uh, the same way that 20% uh, of the Israeli population are Israeli citizens who are Arab? I don't think it's unthinkable to the Israelis, but when people throw around this polemic apartheid, they misapply it. It shouldn't be applied to Israel. It should be applied to the Palestinian Authority, which wants their whole region to be Judenrein, much like many of the Arab countries who expelled the Jews uh, over recent decades. Um, I suspect what you're going to see is territorial justice. You know, over Christmas, I went to Armenia, and I was talking about the Armenia-Azerbaijan peace agreement. There's no map there to determine where the peace should be. So the idea which was put out was if we can agree on how many square kilometers Armenia is, 
Azerbaijan is, then we can just make territorial adjustments along the line until each side has its predetermined square mileage. I suspect that sort of formula might also work with the West Bank. Isn't Azerbaijan one of those Muslim nations that has decent relations with the state of Israel? Um, it is. However, um, I think that this is an Israeli miscalculation. Azerbaijan is under the thumb of Turkey. Turkey is, uh, after Iran, the world's biggest sponsor of Hamas. I think Israel is engaged in wishful thinking right now about the trajectory of Azerbaijan. And certainly, you don't need to ask me on that. You can just look at the Azerbaijani Jews, about two-thirds of whom have fled the country while they still can. They, they are the canary in the coal mine. Uh, all of this, some of the fascinating complications in the Middle East. And one of the things that um, uh, you, I wake up with every day is that with all of the difficulties and the conflicts that we have in the United States of America, we are uh, uh, have the great privilege, of I do, of having been born here and living here, being a, a loyal American citizen. It really is something to be thankful for when you look at the situation uh, in that other side of the world, isn't it, Michael? Oh, you're absolutely right. And as I think we've discussed before, um, I grew up in the United States. I was born here in Philadelphia. I'd gone to a Quaker school, but I never really appreciated, um, to the extent I do now, the freedoms we enjoy, the liberty we enjoy, until I went off uh, and lived under the Taliban, lived in the Islamic Republic of Iran. <laughs> lived under the guns of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, ultimately, I just wish more Americans appreciated what we have here because it is so unique and people take it for granted. And Philadelphia, of course, historical memorials to that. Michael, uh, I don't think you know, I was born in Philadelphia too and lived there with my parents the first six years of my life. Uh, meanwhile, on the United States, a permanent shift because of population shifting, a blue state exodus, which could have a found, profound effects on GOP power. We'll talk about that and more with Henry Olson coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.